Welcome back to our New Testament survey. We are going through the books of the New Testament, uh, one book each Wednesday night, although as we get into a few of the shorter ones, we may group a couple of them together. But this evening, we are in the book of Philippians. Uh, the book of Philippians. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, uh, which was a city uh, in the Roman province there. It was a, a city of trade and uh, it's a, time, a city that Paul spent a little bit of time in, not nearly as much as he had spent in Corinth or Ephesus, some of these other cities. But uh, we do remember, like from Acts 16, that Paul was in uh, Philippi. He was arrested, if you'll remember, was in prison. And that's the, the whole story of the Philippian jailer uh, and his household coming to faith and being baptized. And so a church was started there in Philippi. Uh, and so Paul is now in prison in Rome and is writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, the occasion for this letter uh, was that the church there in Philippi had sent uh, Epaphroditus to visit Paul in Rome uh, and to bring with him a gift from the church, uh, probably financial contribution to help uh, care for Paul. He's under house arrest in Rome, and so he does have uh, some personal expenses there. Uh, and so the church here in Philippi has sent him gifts at other times in the past. They've shown uh, partnership with him in his ministry, and so they have sent uh, this gift to him. Uh, there's also uh, a report that Paul receives uh, from Epaphroditus as he brings the gift that there are some problems in the church in Philippi, some division, some false teaching. We'll see that it's very similar to uh, things that were occurring in Galatia, but not as severe, not to that extent, obviously, uh, the church is doing better uh, in Philippi at dealing with it than the, church in, uh, the churches in Galatia were, but still Paul writes to encourage them uh, in this regard. So this was written during his Roman imprisonment, probably in the early uh, 60s, so this is one of those uh, prison letters that he sent along with Ephesians and Colossians. Um, so the themes that we'll see as we work through it primarily are two, uh, and one is unity in the church, unity in Christ as believers, not in the same way that uh, he spoke about it to the churches in Galatia or in Ephesus, where there it was uh, largely unity between Gentile and Jew. Uh, the unity here is different. It's disagreement between some of the members of the church, and Paul is uh, exhorting them to be of the same mind, to be united together in Christ. Uh, the other major theme that we see here is uh, dealing with suffering, uh, the idea of suffering for Christ, uh, for the work of the gospel, uh, Paul's suffering in Rome, and then uh, him encouraging them uh, that they will likewise suffer for the sake of the gospel. So once again, I would just summarize as far as an outline goes, the four chapters. Uh, the first chapter, of course, does include the greeting and Paul's prayer of thankfulness at the beginning, but the primary uh, thrust of chapter one seems to be uh, that introduction of Paul kind of giving the church an update uh, and expressing to them uh, the results of his ministry while he's in prison in Rome. And that will tie into uh, some other aspects of the, the letter uh, in the further chapters. Chapter 2 will be primarily concerned with unity. 
uh, in the church, unity in service to Christ. Chapter 3 will be a warning against false teachers and an exhortation to follow Paul's example. And then chapter 4, uh, I'm going to call that one Rejoice in the Lord because that's one of the main themes there, but uh, there's several things going on. So as we look at the letter and the greeting particularly, uh, it's interesting in this one that Paul introduces the letter uh, and says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So uh, it's not just a letter from Paul, although his is the primary voice that's speaking, but Timothy is there with him and Timothy is sending his greetings and maybe even participating uh, in dictating parts of the letter. Um, But it's addressed to the church, all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, but then particular attention to uh, the elders and the deacons, the the officers in the church, uh, particularly because uh, we're dealing with some false teaching that needs to be, they need to be on guard against and seeking to provide unity within the church. So Paul addresses it uh, to the whole church, but specifically to the elders and deacons. And then he gives his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he enters into uh, his prayer of thankfulness, his thanksgiving that he has for uh, the church here in Philippi, that he prays for them often uh, with joy uh, because they have partnered with him in the gospel in times past. Uh, And so he's very thankful for this church. They've been, had a good relationship with Paul. He doesn't have a relationship with them the way he did with Corinth, where he was having to send hard letters to the church in Corinth and uh, things were tense between the apostle and the church. His relationship to the church in Philippi uh, is good. It's strong. And so he's thankful for that partnership that he has with them. Uh, And then he encourages them uh, in verse 6. He says that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so obviously that good work that has begun in them is their salvation, and the completing of that is their sanctification, and that will play a role uh, in Paul's exhortations to them regarding unity. Uh, He'll speak to them about their sanctification uh, as they grow in grace and grow in uh, the love of Christ and express that towards one another. Uh, And so then he goes on to tell them uh, what he is praying for them. In addition to being thankful for them, uh, he prays for them. He says in verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So he's praying uh, that they would continue to grow in love, uh, but that that love would be joined to knowledge and discernment. Uh, And that is because there are false teachers that are coming into the church, and so they need to know the truth of the scriptures, know the truth of the gospel, and have the discernment to be able to Uh, be on guard against the false teachers. So uh, this is his prayer for them. Uh, Their love will uh, come into play as he speaks to them about unity in chapter 2 and how they serve one another. Uh, In verse 10, obviously he is encouraging them to uh, be ready for Christ's return till the day of Christ. And so uh, that's another theme that's going to come up several times in the letter uh, is the return of Christ. Uh, That our hope and our longing for that final glorification where we receive our glorified bodies and no longer struggle uh, with sin and and suffering here in this world. Uh, 
he then tells them that um, the reason that he's praying these things is that being, he says in verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So uh, his goal is in these prayers is that they would abound with uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, uh, that is that they would live sanctified lives and that it would, be, it would bear fruit in their relationships with one another and in their uh, holding firmly to the truth of the gospel and rejecting false teaching. Uh, he then gives them a report on his ministry in Rome where he's in prison, uh, and he wants them to know that him being cast in prison in Rome has actually turned out uh, by the grace of God to be a good thing. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, so him being put in prison in Rome has not uh, ended his ministry. It's given him an opportunity to share the gospel with people he would not have had access to otherwise. And so uh, he says that uh, the whole palace guard uh, has been a witness to the gospel because of his chains, uh, that he's there, that they, the palace guard even sees that he is in prison because he is serving Christ. Uh, and not because he's some sort of political rabble-rouser or something like that. Uh, we'll also see at the end of the letter that he sends them greetings from uh, the saints who are in Rome, including some who are of Caesar's household. So uh, the, the palace guards and even members of Caesar's household have come to faith in Christ because Paul is there under house arrest awaiting uh, his time before Caesar. Uh, he then says that not only uh, has being in prison there afforded him this opportunity for ministry in a way that he wouldn't have had otherwise, but it has also caused other believers who have witnessed this uh, to grow in boldness to proclaim the gospel. He says in verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, so other believers have seen Paul, seen his ministry, even though he's in prison, and that has encouraged them and emboldened them uh, to speak the gospel outside of being in prison. Uh, so him being in prison is actually serving uh, the church, serving the ministry. People are hearing the gospel and getting saved who wouldn't have otherwise, and believers in the church in Rome are being strengthened and encouraged uh, and growing in boldness to proclaim the gospel throughout that city. Uh, he then says that even though this is the case, that there are some who, knowing that he's in prison, are preaching the gospel, uh, he says in verse 16, from selfish ambition. Uh, they're hoping to uh, kind of stick a knife in a little bit, like, hey, Paul's in prison, but I can be out here preaching the gospel. Uh, but his conclusion is, it doesn't matter uh, what their motivation is. If they're preaching the true gospel, uh, then He's content with that. He rejoices in it. If they're preaching it out of good motives because they're encouraged by what they've seen in him or if they're preaching it out of bad motives, if they're preaching Christ, then he's content with that and is not going to take it as a personal offense uh, even though they might mean it that way. Uh, he then goes on uh, in the latter half of the chapter uh, to talk about uh, his situation 
uh, in suffering and being in prison and his desire to be with Christ. Uh, and, and he says that he wants to, to go be with Christ. To be with Christ is better uh, than to continue here on earth, but he knows that he must continue here because he has work left for the good of the church. Uh, so he says that uh, in verse 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Uh, so he's confident that God is not done with him here on earth, even though he would like to be with the Lord, uh, relieved of uh, the suffering, relieved of living uh, in a body where he still wrestles with sin, as we've seen in Romans chapter 7. Uh, but God has work for him to continue to do, and so he is re- not only content with that, but rejoicing uh, that he can continue to serve Christ in that way. Uh, of course, we do see uh, the very well-known there. Philippians is full of several verses that are not only uh, popular and well-known, but are, are favorite verses of people. Verse 21, for me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, so sometimes we hear that verse, we think of the apostle maybe standing on a hilltop with a cape flapping in the breeze. He kind of sounds like a superhero saying something like that. But this is a man who's in prison, who, who is writing this. Uh, He's suffering for the gospel. He has suffered uh, quite a bit for the gospel. Uh, And he's saying that to live, he can continue to serve Christ. But if he were to die, that would be a gain for him because he would lay aside this sinful flesh and be in the presence of Christ. And so that's what he desires, but uh, God is not done with him, so he is content and actually rejoices uh, to continue to serve Christ and to serve his church. He is confident that Christ will be glorified either way. Uh, no matter what happens to him, that Christ will be glorified. And it's interesting that he expressed this desire, like it would be better, I would be happier if I could go be with the Lord rather than continue to suffer. But for your sakes, it's better for me to continue. So he's giving them an example that he's going to tell them later to follow his example, uh, that he's thinking of others ahead of himself. And so we've got some uh, contention in the church over some things, and he's telling them they need to be united together. They need to think of others and serve others ahead of themselves. And he's showing them by his example that that's what he is doing. Uh, And so then he tells them in in verse 27, uh, to let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, So, you know, he said some similar things uh, to Corinth, but they were kind of harsh when he said them to Corinth. He was threatening that he was going to have to come to them uh, and be harsh with them when he arrived. But here you can tell uh, there's a friendlier tone to this, uh, but he's encouraging them uh, to live worthy of the gospel uh, and that he might hear that they are doing so. But he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he wants unity in the church, not only, uh, as we'll see, so that they can serve one another in love, but that unity also uh, gives them a greater defense against false teaching, uh, which he'll deal with in chapter 3. Uh, So then he says in verse 29 that uh, it has been granted uh, on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, So it's interesting language that he says it's been granted to you the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. 
Uh, and so we see that even in the book of Acts when we think about uh, Peter and John being arrested, that, that they were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering for Christ's sake and for his name. Uh, and so Paul is continuing that sort of attitude that uh, as Christians face suffering in this world, uh, that we should do so with joy, uh, knowing that if we are suffering for Christ's sake, uh, that he is glorified in that. Uh, and Paul has already told us that his suffering in prison has resulted in people uh, coming to faith, being saved, and so that's a good thing. And so he's looking beyond himself and looking to the good of others, even in his suffering. Uh, as he moves into chapter 2, he then uh, begins to address this, con this idea of unity in the church. This is his desire for them. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Uh, so, this is his desire for the church, is that they would uh, be loving towards one another, uh, that they would be in agreement with one another. Uh, and he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Uh, so he's already given them an example of this in his own life, and now he's encouraging them uh, that to love one another, uh, to serve one another, uh, to humble themselves and consider others uh, before they consider them, their own uh, desires. And so he says in verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So he says if they do this, if they love one another in this way uh, and are affectionate and of one mind, uh, then that will bring him joy. Uh, as he looks at this church, at this body of believers, that he would have joy if they did this. And so this idea of unity in the church, he's told them how to do it, and that is through humility uh, and serving one another. He then, in verse 5 through 11, uh, almost seems to go off on a get caught up uh, in the glory of Christ and talking about Christ. And most commentators agree that this is, uh, in the Greek, takes the form of a, a short hymn uh, about Christ that uh, could possibly have even been sung. Uh, but he, what he does here is he shows them that uh, Christ himself humbled himself in order to serve uh, the Father and to serve the church. And so uh, he, he said, he made himself of no reputation, this is verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So we're talking about the Lord of glory who humbled himself uh, to come and live a life on earth uh, that would ultimately result in his death for the sake of redeeming his people. And so he came to serve. He humbled himself. Uh, he says that in verse 8, that he humbled himself. He became obedient to death. Uh, so he, he's giving them the example uh, of Christ and saying this is how you should be living in humility and service towards others. Uh, but what we have here is almost a, a V-shaped um, idea concerning Christ that he came from, from heaven, 
humbled himself, came to earth, was obedient to the point of death. And then in verse 9, we have Christ's exaltation uh, as God exalts him highly and gives him a name above every name. Uh, In verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, So these are well-known verses, uh, but I think what's running through Paul's mind here as he's writing this is a couple of passages from the book of Isaiah. Obviously, Isaiah writing about uh, the servant of the Lord uh, and the Messiah uh, is in Paul's mind quite a bit as he's writing about Christ. But in Isaiah 52, verse 13, uh, speaking of the sin-bearing servant, It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Uh, He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Uh, And so that's what he has said that the Lord has done for Christ. And then in chapter 45, verse 23, again speaking of the suffering servant, uh, God says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So, Uh, Those verses obviously are there in Paul's mind as he's writing this concerning Christ's uh, exalted state after his time of service here on the earth. Uh, So we have this hymn about Christ as an example for us. Uh, And so the key to unity in the church is quite obviously humility. If Christ, who is the Lord of glory, could humble himself and serve others, uh, then his people should as well. And so then because uh, we should be concerned for Christ's glory uh, and to serve as he did, then we should keep living in such a way as to reflect uh, who we are as his people, as his body, as the the salvation that he has worked in us uh, and applying it to our lives. And so uh, there we have verse 12, again, well-known verse. Uh, where he tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so that's what he's talking about. You've been saved. You've been made into a new creature in Christ. Uh, And so our sanctification uh, would work that out. It would apply the fact that we have a new identity in Christ. uh, And so we should be made into his image who humbled himself and served. And so that is how we should live if we're going to live in a way worthy of the gospel. And we can only do this uh, because Christ is working in us. And he says that in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we we can't do it in our own strength. Uh, We have to do it uh, in the strength of the Lord. Then uh, as he continues to encourage them in this way, he tells them in verse 14 uh, not to complain or dispute with one another, Uh, And verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, And I think that uh, Daniel chapter 12 is probably in Paul's mind as he's writing this, uh, where Daniel talks about the ones who are righteous would shine like the stars of heaven. And Daniel obviously was one uh, who conducted himself as a child of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so Paul is encouraging uh, the believers in Philippi to do the same, to hold fast 
to the word of life. So he's telling them to hold fast to the scriptures, uh, which bring us salvation, as we saw in 2 Timothy. Uh, it is the scriptures of the Old and now the New Testament as well that make us wise unto salvation, uh, brings us spiritual life. Uh, and so he's telling them uh, to hold fast to those scriptures uh, so that he could rejoice uh, in them on the day of Christ. So when Christ returns and the Philippians are part of the church that is caught up to be with Christ, Paul can rejoice that his labor was not in vain, uh, that they actually did uh, believe the gospel and worked it out in their lives. So then uh, he addresses Timothy and then Epaphroditus uh, here in the last half of chapter 2, uh, telling them that he hopes to send Timothy to them. Uh, he gives Timothy quite a condemna- uh, commendation here, uh, saying that uh, he has, he says in verse 20, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Uh, so Timothy uh, has proven himself to be an able Uh, assistant to Paul and one who will do exactly what Paul is telling the Philippians to do and that is to humble himself and be concerned about other people ahead of himself and he will care for them Uh, and he says that Timothy is the the only one he has that is that like-minded who will do that and not seeking his own but seeking uh, the good of others and seeking the things which are Christ's he says in verse 21. Uh, So Timothy has proven himself in that way. He wants to send Timothy to them, uh, but he hasn't at this time. But it does seem that he has sent Epaphroditus back uh, with the letter, probably carried the letter back. He had come to Paul where Paul was in prison. Uh, He had been very, very ill to the point of death. Uh, The church had heard of it and been worried about uh, their servant that they had sent with the the gift, Uh, but he's better. Uh, And so Paul said, God has shown mercy Uh, not only to Epaphroditus, but to Paul, because that would have been sorrowful for him. Uh, But he sent him back uh, to to the church to encourage them and to bring them this letter. And he, the suffering that he endured, the illness that he endured, was suffering for Christ's sake uh, because he was involved in the work of the church. Then in chapter 3, Uh, he starts to address some of the problems in the church, namely uh, the false teaching that they are... need to be aware of. And so he says in verse 2, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Uh, So he doesn't have nice names for uh, the false teachers. Uh, He calls them dogs, Uh, This language is used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to people who are both impure uh, morally, but also who are opportunists, uh, seeking just for themselves, like a dog would go after meat or whatever, but also would be filthy and dirty. Uh, And so he says that that's how they are. He calls them evil workers. That word workers is the same word that he uses elsewhere to talk about people who are co-laborers with him in the gospel. And so here he says these ones are evil workers. They're deceitful. Uh, They're corrupt. They're harmful. Like Paul's labor for the churches is always to try and build them up to edify the church. Evil workers would do the opposite. They would end up tearing the church down. uh, And they would pretend like they're doing gospel work 
but the results would be instead of building the church up, that they would tear them down, that they would destroy people's faith, and that they would tear the church apart. Uh, and then he calls them uh, the mutilation or the concision, as it says in the King James. Uh, he's, it's a kind of a play on words here. Uh, he's probably talking about Jewish teachers who are telling them, just as they did in Galatia, that you need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, that you have to keep these uh, old covenant regulations and convert to Judaism, and then you can be a Christian. And Paul says what they're doing is simply mutilating their bodies. He says, we are the circumcision. Uh, and so he's speaking about circumcision of the heart, uh, that the true circumcision, as he spoke about uh, elsewhere, uh, is circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh. And so what they're doing is not accomplishing anything other than to mutilate their bodies. Uh, but the real work is the work of Christ to circumcise the heart, to cut away that old sin nature, uh, and to give new life. Uh, and so it seems that the Philippians are kind of dealing with some of the same false teaching that might have been happening in Galatia and other places, uh, but haven't succumbed to it the way the churches in Galatia had. Uh, so he's not as harsh with them, but he is telling them that they need to uh, be aware of this. They need to be on guard and alert against these false teachers, uh, against these people who might cause division in the church or be causing harm to people's faith. Uh, and so then he tells them uh, that what they really need to be seeking uh, is, as he says in verse 9, uh, to be found in Christ, in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so uh, this is the same thing that he told the church in Galatia, uh, that as it was said about Abraham in the Old Testament, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul's saying uh, you can't accomplish true righteousness by your own effort to keep the law. Uh, true righteousness is found through faith in Christ alone. Uh, and so that's what he is encouraging them to do. He then says in verse 10 uh, that, that the reason he wants this true righteousness is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul says is his desire for himself and the desire he wants them to have as well uh, is the desire to have not only uh, sanctification happening, new life being made anew into the image of Christ, but to finish well and attain the resurrection from the dead. So to attain the glorified state. So we have justification, sanctification, and then glorification. And so obviously Paul's looking forward to that hope of attaining the resurrection from the dead. Uh, and then he says in verse 12, like, I haven't already attained this. I I'm not completely sanctified. I'm not already perfected. But uh, I'm striving, I'm pressing on, he says, uh, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, uh, which is interesting language. He said, Christ got a hold of me, and so I'm trying to uh, get a hold of him in the same way and to uh, grab on to that new life that he has given me. Uh, and so he says, I haven't, I haven't done it, I'm not there yet. Uh, we see that reflected also in his letter to the Romans, uh, when, you know, Romans 7 and 8 particularly. Um, but he's striving that direction, uh, wanting, 
wanting that resurrected, that resurrection life now and looking forward to a resurrection body in the future. Uh, he then says in verse 16, um, that on well, verse 15 to 16, therefore let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So he's telling them, this is the thing that you need to be striving for. You need to be think, thinking this way uh, to lay hold of Christ, uh, to seek uh, sanctification and to have the hope of a resurrected body in the future. Uh, this is what motivates Paul and he wants it to motivate them as well. And so then he says, uh, he encourages them by telling them uh, that they should follow his example. He's already given them his example. He's given them the example of Christ. Uh, and so he says this is a pattern for them to follow, uh, that he wants them uh, to live the way he has, to be of the same mind that he has, which is to humble himself and to serve others. Uh, and he says that uh, those who uh, are enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, their end is destruction, uh, their God is their belly, uh, and their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Uh, so even if they are in the church and are teaching and are these evil workers he's speaking of? Their motivations are wrong. They've got their minds set on earthly things. But, he says, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and so we should set our mind on these things that are above uh, where Christ is. Uh, our Savior is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so that should be our focus. Uh, we should be of one mind and have our minds set on heaven and of the hope of the gospel, which is... Uh, to be conformed to his glorious body, as he says in verse 21. So then he says, therefore, because of all of this, um, that he wants them to stand fast in the Lord, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, he wants them to stand fast, uh, to, and to stand fast means to not be moved. Uh, he used that same language in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of the Lord, uh, that the goal was to stand fast and to not be moved by the attacks of the enemy. And so then he addresses two people um, in particular by name. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. So these two women that he names by name, uh, he's imploring them to unity. Uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And this same mind is the one he's been talking about all along, to humble yourself, to serve others, to think of others ahead of yourself. Uh, and, and so he names these two women by name. Uh, and he says in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Uh, they labored with him in the gospel. So it's not, he's not calling them false teachers. And then he says, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's not saying these are false teachers that are causing division. He's saying these are two Christians in the church who are having some sort of conflict. We don't know what the nature of it is, uh, but he is urging them to each humble themselves and to seek to serve one another. And he's encouraging the entire church uh, to do the same and to help these women uh, work this out. 
He then says in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this is one of those popular verses that we, we hear out of Philippians. We sing even. The context, though, is this conflict that's in the church. And he's saying there's conflict here. There's people who are in disagreement, but they're believers. They're united in Christ. They're both, as he said back in chapter 3, verse 20, citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So they can humble themselves, serve one another, have unity in the church, and we can rejoice in that. Uh, Even when there is conflict, we can rejoice because we are all united to Christ. He then says in verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Uh, And so he's saying Christ will soon return. We'll soon be with him. Uh, And so we should strive for this sort of unity now on the earth uh, because uh, he will soon come back and we should let our gentleness be known to all men. And so uh, think about what Christ said in John 13, 35, that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, And so he's encouraging them. Like the world is watching. Think about your testimony to the world. Uh, Let let your testimony to the world be known to all men, that you love one another, that you're kind and gentle with one another uh, because we're all united in Christ. And then again, you know, verse 6 and 7 are words that we're very familiar with. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Those are wonderful verses and we can apply them to many, many situations. But the immediate context here uh, is this division and conflict that's in the church and he's encouraging them uh, to unity and he's telling them to to go to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving uh, and that the results would be peace. Uh, The peace of God which surpasses understanding uh, would guard their hearts and their minds so that they could all be of one mind. They could have humility in their hearts and serve one another Uh, And so then he says in verse 8, he gives us again another passage that we're very familiar with. uh, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, uh, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Uh, And so again, he's talking about uh, this conflict this unity that he is encouraging them to. uh, And he's telling them to think about things that are good. Uh, If we think about what he wrote to the church in Corinth, which had far worse division than the church in Philippi does, but if you'll remember, in the midst of speaking to the church in Corinth about the use of their spiritual gifts, he told them uh, that love was the key to using their gifts properly and using them well. And he said this about love, that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not have behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so it seems to me what he is telling the Philippian church here is when you've got this sort of conflict, whatever it is, he's telling them you're both believers. You're united in Christ. You're one body. Think the best about one another. Don't think the worst. Uh, 
think about things that are good, be encouraged, uh, rejoice in the things that we can rejoice in rather than uh, dwelling on the negative. Uh, he wants them to imitate uh, his attitude of humility and service, the same uh, mind that we have seen in Christ who humbled himself in order to serve even to the point of death. And he says, if you do those things, then the God of peace will be with you. Then you'll have peace and unity in the church. Uh, and again, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's what he is encouraging them uh, to do. Uh, he then rejoices uh, here at the end of the letter in their gift and their care for him. Uh, and again, this is uh, another passage that we're very familiar with. Uh, he is telling them that uh, they have served him by caring for his needs uh, and that there were times when they didn't have an opportunity to do so, but they found an opportunity and they took it. Uh, and so he's thankful for that. Uh, he says, that the gift that they have given him, he could have been content without it, that he's learned to be content when he's in need, but learned to be content when he has uh, everything that he needs. And he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So uh, that's a verse that we may see printed on the side of a coffee cup uh, or sometimes hear an athlete quote that verse, you know, after they've won the big game or whatever. But in this situation, Paul is using it talking about suffering. Uh, talking about being in need uh, and saying, I can, I can do that because Christ strengthens me for that, that he's learned to be content when he's in need or when he has an abundance either way. And so he, he rejoices not so much in the gift, but in the fact that they gave it. He's rejoicing in their sanctification that has resulted uh, in them sacrificing in order to send a gift to him. And so he said in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Uh, so what he's uh, rejoicing and what he wants for them uh, is the fruit of their sanctification, their growth in grace, that they would think of others, uh, serve others. And so that's what he is encouraging them to do uh, throughout the letter. Uh, he says in verse 18, indeed I have all and am abound and am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And then he calls the gift that they sent him a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Uh, again, this is language he's picking up out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, uh, that talk about the Gentiles uh, worshiping in the temple and offering uh, sacrifices that would be acceptable to God. And so he's saying this is fulfilled, like the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled uh, in the church in Philippi as they've ministered to Paul's needs uh, and have sacrificed in order to minister to him. Uh, and so ultimately the church uh, is a kingdom of priests offering acceptable sacrifices to our Lord. Uh, so then he closes the letter uh, greeting those who are there in Philippi, uh, but then telling them in verse 22, as I mentioned earlier, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Think about this. Paul's under arrest in Rome, uh, awaiting trial before Caesar. And he's ministered to the guards. He has ministered to members of Caesar's household. Some of them have now become believers uh, because of the testimony of the apostle. Uh, and then 
these believers who are seeing this man in prison suffer well for the sake of the gospel see a church in another city sacrificially send a gift uh, to help support him uh, while he's in prison, that would be a huge encouragement to those new believers uh, there in Rome to see the church functioning in that way. Uh, And so all the saints, he says, greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household who have been encouraged by the Philippians' gift uh, and by their behavior. Uh, So Uh, This was Paul's letter to the church in Philippian uh, and Philippi, uh, and he is thankful for them, encouraged by their giving, uh, but he is exhorting them to have unity in the church, uh, primarily through humbling themselves to serve one another in love uh, and to suffer well as he has done uh, in prison in Rome. So it's a very encouraging letter. Uh, It's not as harsh as Uh, 1 Corinthians or Galatians can be, uh, but it's a very encouraging and uplifting letter, uh, and I'm sure that it was to them when they received it, and it can be to us as well, uh, as it causes us to rejoice in the Lord and to seek uh, to humble ourselves and to serve one another and find unity in the church uh, 2,000 years later. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.